Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. As you know, I've been reading a biography of uh, Oliver Cromwell, and in the middle of the political machinations that are going on in our country right now, there's been an increased discussion of something that was much discussed in the time of Cromwell, which is the issue of consent. And so there are many people today that say that uh, various measures of our government do not have the consent of the governed, that we don't agree, you know? And it's viewed as foundational that government that doesn't have the agreement of the governed is illegitimate government, and specifically that it's tyranny. And as I talk about these things, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know that we, the people, uh, believe that uh, for a government to be just, that the government can't oppress the people, and that if the government does oppress the people, then the people have a right to rebel. That's foundational to our constitutional documents. And so a lot of Christians have been talking about tyranny recently, and I go back and read about the Civil War in England and Cromwell, and their understanding that they had the right Uh, and maybe even the duty, to oppose their king at the time, and then the House of Lords to the degree that the House of Lords supported the king. Because why? Well, because it was tyranny. Why? Well, because it didn't have the consent of the governed. And so they would also fight about who were the governed, who had the right to vote. Well, you didn't have the right to vote at the end of the... uh, when When he was made protector, you didn't have the right to vote unless you had... Uh, property worth more than 200 pounds. You had to have a vested interest in the country. You couldn't just show up and vote. And you certainly weren't allowed to vote if you were on the dole from the government. And so you think about who is actually the citizen that should give consent. Well, even that is argued over. Well, you don't have a right to give or withhold consent because you're not You know, you're, and so what we have as Christians today is a very highly developed sense of what? Of our rights. We know what our rights are. And if something violates our rights, well, that ain't right. Don't violate my rights because that ain't right. And you know that that all came from our mamas. Our mamas taught us that we have rights, and it ain't right to violate our rights. Our mothers didn't have faith for their authority or the authority of their husbands. They just taught their children that what was not right wasn't right. And if the, the little punk, you know, didn't think it was right and said why to his mother, 
His mother never ever said, because I said so, that's why. She said, well now, sweetie pie, you know, how do you think it makes me feel? And how do you think it makes your daddy feel if you aren't willing to stop picking your nose when we have guests at the table? I mean, it's gross. And sweetie, we're just trying to get you to be civilized. We're just trying to get you so when you find some man that's interested in you, you don't turn him off by picking your nose at the dinner table. Now, of course, I'm, I'm picking, not my nose. <laughs> I'm picking an example that, you know, we all can laugh about, you know. But think of the degree to which we in the church and in our own homes have taught the children that God gives us, that they have rights. And the first commitment they should have is to defend their rights. Because if their rights are violated, that ain't right. And that's how we approach God. (laughs) And we think God understands the necessity of him explaining to us why he does what he does. I mean, come on, it's true, you know? I know it's true because I know how you approach me. (laughs) You know, you expect an explanation. You remember my favorite cartoon maybe of all time is this man standing under the bench looking up at the judge and saying, guilty with an explanation, your honor. If you don't know, that will not cut it. You're guilty. You're not guilty. You don't, have, you don't have the privilege of being guilty with an explanation. And authority, which must always explain and justify itself, is not authority. I remember when I was young, and I was trying to figure out exactly how rebellious am I, you know? Because you have this, like, sneaking suspicion that probably you're a rebel, you know? And I realized that when I was young, that the very center of my rebellion was that I never felt like I should obey if I didn't agree. And so, of course, my whole thing was, why? But but why? And all of a sudden, I had enough self-awareness, and it's very rare in teenagers, but I had enough self-awareness to realize that the very center of my rebellion was demanding that those in authority over me would explain themselves. (laughs) So, here's our text. Romans chapter 9, verses 19 to 21. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? This is the word of the Lord. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here 
be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. And we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the Apostle Paul has been working his way through objections that man makes. Now, man includes woman, okay? So when I say man, you women are included. Objections that man makes to God's choice of some and his repudiation of others, all right? To his predestination of some men to eternal life and other men to eternal judgment. And here in our passage this morning, he turns to the third objection. The first objection the Apostle Paul answered was that God has not kept his word. In verse 6 we read, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. And then the explanation for they are not Israel who are descended from Israel. In other words, they are objecting, saying, Well, you promised you'd be God to us and our children, but you're telling us that some of our children are lost. And so you haven't kept your word. You promised to be a God to us and our children. And his response is to take you through Scripture and show you how over and over again there are the children of promise, the children of the Spirit, and the children of the flesh. And so, yes, he promises he will be a God to us and to our children. And then he distinguishes between various children that we have. Some are the children of promise, and some are not the children of promise. And he shows that all through Scripture this has been true. And he starts with Jacob and Esau, you know, and with Isaac and Ishmael. So that's the first objection. He says, no, God has not failed to keep his word. The second objection the Apostle Paul answered was that God is unfair or unjust. And so in verse 14, he says, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And so it is God's prerogative to bestow on whom he chooses both mercy and compassion. He owes mercy and compassion to nobody, to no one. Now then, the Apostle Paul turns to the third objection men make to God's choosing of some and passing over others. And this third objection is that God benefits or that it is God himself who pleases himself when he chooses to withhold mercy and compassion from this or that man. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? We can't resist God, can we? The question, who resists his will, requires a response, no one. We are mere creatures, and he is the creator. And therefore, it's pure abuse for him to withhold mercy and compassion from us, and then judge and condemn us to hell for the necessary results of his withholding of mercy and compassion from us. His refusal to give us straw is the reason we are unable to make the bricks. If God wills something, he has the power to do it. If he wills sin and rebellion, and only his gift of grace can raise a man from this sin and rebellion, how can he fault that man to whom he withholds grace? 
In other words, it's God himself who appears to be the author of this tragedy, and so how can he blame and punish the man whose eternal destiny is fixed by what he himself has willed? Or to bring it down to the way we often think of it, how can we say or believe a man is a moral agent responsible for his choices when those choices are determined beforehand by God? And yet, again and again and again, we find in Scripture that God does, in fact, hold man responsible for his choices, for every last one of them. God calls man to obedience. God calls man to repentance for disobedience. God commands man to keep his law. God exhorts man to obedience to that law. Why do you exhort? Well, because you want to influence the will. God faults man for failure to obey his law. God punishes man here in this life for disobedience and often uses that punishment to call man back to greater obedience and fear of him as his maker. God commands man to choose between life and death, pleading with him to choose life so that he and his children may live. God instructs man in the path that he should go. God provides gifts and sacraments and shepherds to keep man in the way that he should go. God finds righteousness in man and God finds fault in man. And he rewards the first and he punishes the second. And why? Because man is a moral agent. With real choice and with real responsibility for that choice. And that this is obvious and this is taught from the book of Genesis the whole way through Scripture to the book of Revelation. Man is a moral agent with real choice. It is our own pride and hard-heartedness that causes us to declare God is inconsistent with himself in choosing some and not others. Then turning around and judging and condemning those others for their unbelief. And so what we do is we say, we say God is inconsistent. We say God is unfair. This doesn't fit with that. That doesn't mesh with this. You can't say both that and this. And yet that's precisely what God says. (laughs) So much for God. And this is what we think in our hearts and often are so audacious as even to say it with our mouths. And, And truth be told, we turn away from him because of this. Okay, so that's one direction, but here's another direction. Or we sin in another way by placing Scripture on a Procrustean bed. We bend this in Scripture and bend that, and we pull and tug over here and shove and leverage over there, 
until we have masticated the text of Scripture into some glob, we feel that we and our children can swallow. Sadly, though, what our children are left with is not the word of God, but the perception that their dad is very smart to see how inconsistent God is and how inconsistent his word is. And, but what a fine solution their father has come up with to save God from getting a bad name and reputation. I mean, come on. I read the crud that people write in order to protect God's reputation. And it's so awful. And honestly, it's so stupid. I mean, honestly, it it just seems so stupid to me. I remember one guy in our small group, and oh, he he was quite the man. You know, and honestly, we love him to this day. We love his wife. We love their children. We got along great, but when it came to God's decrees, this guy just seemed to have taken leave of his senses. And he would start going on and on explaining this and that and the other thing, and I'd just be sitting there. I'd never preach Romans. I'd never preach Romans 9. But Romans 9 would stupid me. It'd keep coming into my mind. And while he was saying, that ain't right, I was saying, that ain't right. And I, you know, there are times in your life where people say things to you that are so embarrassing because they're so wrong. You know, you have times like this. I'm not just talking about the interpretation of scripture. I'm not talking about spiritual truths. You know, people will do and say things that are absolutely opposite to something that they said with great fervor the moment before. And you'll be there and you'll remember what they just got done saying and then you'll be listening to what they're saying. <laughs> you go, <laughs> hey, you just keep your mouth shut. You know, you don't say anything to them because you know if you pointed it out to them, they would hate you to the day they died because you would have exposed them at their most embarrassing moment of life. You know, you've been in places like that where, you know, your mother says that some other woman is a shrew and has ruined her husband's life and your mother is a shrew and and ruined her husband's life. And she's complaining about another one. You just keep your mouth shut. <laughs> you don't say nothing, <laughs> you know? And that's how I felt talking to this man as he went on and on with these permutations and conniptions and, and, and cogitations and per- perambulators about how we had to protect God from choosing. Because it just wouldn't be right. That's not right. People have a right. And so often today... You see this over and over again among Bible scholars that you read. 
preparing to preach. And you just see them judging God and his word and being oblivious to it. Just over and over again in commentaries, you will find men judging God. And you just get so weary of it. And you think to yourself, why am I reading this crud to feed God's sheep? I mean, really. And so now, guess what? I went to Gordon Conwell. That's where Tim Keller went. Oh, yeah. He was there about two years before I was. And I had all the best and brightest, you know. David Halberstam, you know, all the best and brightest were my professors. And so I bought their commentaries and, and I listened to their concerns about God. You know, and about authorship. <laughs> You know, all this stuff, you know. And so I bought, I remember I bought I. Howard Marshall on the book of Luke. And man, that cost a pretty penny. I think it was $40 back then for one commentary on one book. But it was said to be the, the quintessential expression of evangelical exegetical scholarship. And so I went out into my church and I couldn't wait to preach Luke. Because I would get to use the, the creme de la creme, you know. And so, sure enough, I go into Luke. And I think it was Christmas time, right? Luke, Christmas, right? Okay. And so I open up this, this treasure. And it's like the whole book is like reacting to the liberals' arguments. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do? This is no help to me. You know, I'm not going to get into my congregation who, you know, they've just come in from milking their cows. And I'm supposed to tell them what important people over in England say about this and that. And this is the way we come to a text like this. We begin to explain it and embroider it and... try to fit it onto the Procrustean bed of American political theory, you know, which starts with natural rights, supposedly given by God. Principle among those rights that we make choices and those choices are free. And what we mean by free is that Absolutely nothing outside of the individual has any influence over that choice at all. He just makes that choice in a vacuum, (laughs) you know? (laughs) You know, as if any of us have ever made a choice in a vacuum. I was talking to a lawyer yesterday, and we were discussing a case where they threw a case out of a court. And immediately another lawyer trotted it out as an example of the fact that, you know, obviously masks are evil, you know? And I said to the lawyer, I said, listen, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm going to tell you, my judgment is that at least 50% of the cases are actually not decided on the merits of the case. (laughs) And I've said that to an appellate judge in the state of Indiana. He just about blew a gasket. And this lawyer said, less than 50%. We think that we are free moral agents 
because we are convinced that we have natural rights. And principle among those rights is consent. And so if we don't give consent to our mother when she tells us we can't have another cookie, that's the end of it. We did not consent to being limited in our caloric intake. And I could go on and on and on. How many of you men are married to a woman who will never obey you unless she agrees with your decision? Come on, be honest. How many of you women are married to a man who suffers under that? (laughs) That's consent. You have a God-given natural right to not submit to an authority that you don't give your consent to, that you don't agree with. And so if he wants you to submit to him, he better get busy explaining. And so this is exactly how we approach God. We approach God demanding free will. And by free will, we don't mean what he means by free will. We mean what we mean by free will. And that free will is, on any basis, it's laughable. There is no such thing as any person making a decision anywhere in the world at any time in history that that decision has been free as we demand that God give us the decision about the salvation of our souls and our faith. And so then we say, oh, okay, so if my decision is influenced, then it's not a real decision. That's how we think. Well, it can't be, I can't have moral agency if some external force is influencing me, you know? You know? Because the only decision where I am free to make it is the decision that has validity. Because... I have natural rights. It ain't right for me to have somebody make a decision for me. And I say, well, what do you mean by make the decision for you? And you say, well, not give me the freedom to make it without pressure from them. And I say, okay, how many decisions in your life are like that? And at that point, you say, well, I don't know. And I say, yeah, you're right, you don't know. But one thing you do know is that God better handle you that way. You see, listen. You are to obey your mother and your father. Not because you agree with them. But because they are your mother. Right. Right. Now, I'm not saying that to you because I've been in your home this week. I'm saying that to you because I expect you're as sinful a little girl as I was a little boy. And the fact is, God commands us to honor those who are in authority over us. Because if we don't honor those who are in authority over us, we do not honor God who delegated their authority to them and put them in the place of authority over us. I keep telling you, 
If you say that you submit to God's authority and you're a rebel against human authority, uh uh-uh, you don't submit to God's authority. In the same way, if you say you love God but you hate your brother, uh uh-uh, because you actually can see your brother but you can't see God. You can actually see your authority but you can't see God. And so the test of your submission to authority is whether you submit to those authorities that God has put over you. Now, the only reason I'm talking about this is I want you to understand that you have every motivation to get squirrely now as we go through this passage of Scripture. Don't think that you like Romans. You don't. If you're an American... Romans is offensive to you, and especially the verses that we're on this morning. So now I'm going to try to to break through your smugness about how you honor God's word. So the Apostle Paul says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Come on. That is obnoxious. (laughs) On the contrary, who do you think you are? Have you ever been satisfied when your mama has said that to you? (laughs) You know, on the contrary, who do you think you are? You know? And of course, as I stand here and actually look at your sweet faces, mamas, It's incomprehensible to me to even think of you reacting such a way, (laughs) right? I mean, I'm sorry, but I just don't see many women here who I think are capable of defending the authority of God that is in them by virtue of motherhood by saying, on the contrary, who do you think you are to answer back to your mother? Now, I have to say that I have an advantage because my mother never blushed to say that. <laughs> you know, I would say, you know, I was just so full of my own sense of what was fair. And I'd say, why? And she'd say, because I said so, that's why. And I have to tell you, I never tried to go further than that. I never responded by saying, what gives you the right to brush me off that way? You know, I kind of had a sense that she must have the right because she just exercised it, (laughs) you know? Come on. Admit how offensive this statement is to you. Come on. Admit how offensive it is. On the contrary... Who are you, old man, that answers back to God? On the contrary. Who who are you? Who answers back to God? Listen, if we didn't see this in Scripture... And if we hadn't heard it before, this would be completely offensive to us. And we would say, God, you didn't answer the question. 
you're avoiding the question. That's a tautology. That's like a circular argument. That's like a fallacy. That's like, that's like the worst fallacy that I've ever seen. On the contrary, who, who are you? <laughs> you know? I mean, that's kind of like insecure of you, God. I mean, what are you afraid of? Are you afraid that if you actually answer the question I asked, that maybe I won't think that you've answered it? God, let's have a little dialogue here. Isn't that what life is about? Dialogue. And let's have some sincere attempt to grasp and grapple with the deep issues of life that I see. On the contrary, who are you that answers back to God? See, that's what I was saying. There's no excuse for that, really, God. But okay, I understand that the inspiration of Scripture is a very sophisticated thing. And that actually the Apostle Paul is the one who lowered himself to such a, a stupid argument. Because back in the day, people honored authority, and so with Paul, that would make sense. But God, I'm sophisticated. I'm a modern. I, I, I've read lots of things. And in my breast, deep in my breast is an existential reality that if you don't recognize an answer, I'm going to feel you're not worthy of my worship. <laughs> and God says, on the contrary, who are you to answer back to God? And then he goes on, and he uses an illustration. This is the, the pot, say to the potter, you know. You make one thing for an honorable use and another thing for a common use, and what, the pot, the pot says to the potter, how dare you make me for a common use, you know, right? The only thing is that word is a lie because the scholars are trying to protect us from the hard edges of God's inspiration. That word common is not the word common. That word common is the same word that's translated in Romans 1 when it's talking about homosexuality and it refers to the concupiscence, the lust, the passions of homosexuality as what? Degraded passions. Now, it's the same word. So let's, let's try out whether or not it works backwards. So, and, and in the same way, God gave them over to common passions. Does it work? It doesn't work because it's not the word. It's not the word. The word is dishonorable, degraded, debauched, filthy. Now let's go back over the text Restoring the word that the scholars ripped out of God's Bible. Okay? 
And here is what it actually says. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? I mean, in this particular case, I can't for the life of me figure out why they would rob us of the real word when you have honorable and dishonorable. They fit so well together, you know? But yeah, they did it. Now, what is a dishonorable and an honorable vessel? An honorable vessel would be a perfume bottle, right? You know, it's beautiful like the smell. Or a wine goblet, it's beautiful like the vintage. Dishonorable would be a bedpan or a toilet. That's what's talked about here. God makes some goblets, some perfume bottles, and he makes some bedpans, and some toilets. Okay? Now, does that hit you? I mean, all of us could go along with the idea that, well, you know, some of us are kind of common. But I don't think any of us are willing to go along with being dishonorable or, or degraded or debauched or dirty or filthy or corrupt. And yet that's what's being said here. God makes from the same lump of clay a beautiful wine gob and a bedpan. And one holds honor and the other holds dishonor. One is beautiful and the other is filthy. And he's talking about people here. And he's talking about God's agency. And God's agency in doing that in no way violates the moral agency of the man who is filthy. And you say, no, that can't be. And I say, why? And you say, well, because it doesn't add up. And I say, okay, so what are you using to add? And you say, well, just in a, sort of a, a, a deep sense inside of me of what is right. I remember Jurgen. he's told me this story many times that one time he was beginning a class in economics over in Germany and <laughs> this is a true story. He said, uh, so two plus two equals what? And a young woman in the class said, five. And Jürgen was like, what? And she said, basically, I can't quote, you know, I, I've heard this story a number of times, but basically what she said is, if I decide it's five, it's five. And that's the way we approach God's word. We judge God, we judge his word, we judge his dis- decisions, we judge even the words that he expresses himself in. And unless every one of those things conforms to our sense of what is right and fair, we repudiate it. We refuse it. We come up with ways to explain it away, and we're like, God has given me natural rights, and that ain't right. It ain't right. And I keep using the, the, you know, the, the accent 
to make the point to you that this is innate with us. You don't have to have gone to school. You just have to have grown up sucking in milk from the American breast. That's who we are. It ain't right. And so you'll have somebody who's highly educated, and he will never say that ain't right. Because that would make it sound as if he just sucked this in from the American breast. And he wants you to know that there's much more sophisticated logic behind it than just prejudice or American political theory. He thinks he's superior to American political theory, but he has a brain and he uses it and God gave him the brain. And it ain't right. Oh, no, excuse me. That is not correct. And there's such a difference between him and this ignoramus because he doesn't say, I ain't right. He says, that is not correct. And listen, all of us, we're full of ourselves. And we do think we have the right to answer back to God, and we do think we have the right to tell the potter what he's to make of this lump of clay. And if he does not do what we think takes into account our very sophisticated gifts and abilities and our snowflakeness, and and the snowflake our mother told us we always were, and the snowflake that the commencement speaker told us we were, And so we think that God has problems and that he needs to answer to our judgments. And listen, because everybody today is so inclined to attack the messenger, because we have no respect for authority. I am very aware that some of you who don't know me would think that I'm the kind of man who, as I raise children, would just simply say to them, do what I say. And if they ask why, I would say, because I said so, that's why. And so you would think, well, I'm only preaching this way about God and his decrees and his election because It conforms to the kind of authority that I like to exercise, you know? It's like, oh, please, I'm as wussy as every one of you is. I don't want to have to say I'm the authority. It took me years to be comfortable with people in this church having their children address me as Pastor Bailey. Because every time I heard it, I just was like, oh, Oh, please, I don't want that weight. Can't I just be Tim? Do not think that your pastors are simply reflecting their own view of the world. If that's what I'm doing, and you get home and you open the Bible and you think I've done violence to the word of Scripture then you better go to the elders and to me and you better tell them to fire me. This is not a personal issue with me. This is what scripture says. Scripture is not blushing 
at revealing to you the truth of God's eternal decrees. And it's not having conniptions about your judgment of it. It's not worried whether or not you approve. This is the one time in your life you can be absolutely certain that somebody somewhere doesn't just want your approval. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable and another for dishonorable use? As I was preparing to preach, I thought of two things. And I thought, well, I should put them in this sermon and I should read them to you. But reading, I'm already going to read you something at the end and it's going to, you're going to not want to listen because it's just boring when a guy reads stuff, right? So I'll tell you the two stories. One story is the story that Jesus told about the servants, the laborers, and their wages. Do you remember that story? This guy has fields. He needs people to go out in the fields and work. So he goes out in the morning and finds people seeking work. And so he hires them and sends them out in the field. And then he keeps finding them as the day progresses until late in the day. And there's still guys wanting to work. And so he sends them out in the field, right? And so they go out into the field and work. And then when the day is over, they all come in to receive their wages, And so the master proceeds to pay everyone that worked for him that day the same wage. Okay? They all get the same pay. Some worked through the heat of the day. Some didn't work through the heat of the day. And so you can imagine that the ones that worked through the heat of the day were very upset that the people that didn't handle noon and the sun high in the sky and the heat are getting the same amount of pay as they are who had to go through those things. Well, the master is not pleased that they're angry with him. And so it comes to the end of Jesus' parable, and this is what Jesus says. They grumbled at the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden and scorching heat of the day. But he answered, and he said to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Isn't that something? And then he makes one final comment. I wonder if anybody in this room knows what the final comment Jesus makes right there is. Anybody know? The final comment Jesus makes is, but the last shall be first, 
and the first shall be last. In other words, you realize what he's saying. What Jesus is saying is, if you don't like Romans 9 here, and if you don't like what you're getting paid, fine, you'll get nothing. You are the first, and you will be the last. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. How do you think a real authority responds to those of us who demand that he conform himself to our sense of what is right and wrong? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. You know, it's like Philip said, your God is too small. You think you can argue with God. Listen, I hate to say this to you, but that's no God. It's no God. You know, it's my conviction that the real problem we have, many of us with this doctrine, is actually not that God has made from us from the lump of clay, he's made us for a profane use. I think typically in a church of believers, the real problem is that God has made our son a vessel that is dishonorable. I mean, honestly, you have to think, who is Paul responding to here? Who is the apostle Paul writing to saying these things? Well, it's Christians in the church of Rome, right? Why were Christians in the church of Rome thinking these things? Why were they demanding that God answer them? The apostle Paul's not stupid. He's dealing with the real thoughts of his readers. And so why were people in the church of Rome thinking this way? And I'm convinced that I don't know what proportion to give it, But I'm convinced it's because they were demanding that God give their children salvation. And they were bitter that God had not saved their loved ones. I don't think Jesus was making a mistake when he said that you have to hate your father and mother. I think again and again and again, the true the true choice between good and evil among us in the church is whether or not we will submit to God's choice of some and his turning away from others in our own homes. And so I don't really think it's likely that many of the church, the Christians in Rome were sitting there thinking, well, God made of me a dishonorable vessel. He doesn't have the right to do that. I think what they were doing is saying, listen, God, you and I are, and so the people that I'm, and you and I are, and so, listen, God, your decrees need to flow in the direction of my heart. And if they don't, That ain't right. And I think that's as sophisticated as it gets in the church today. Mothers demand that God give saving faith to their children.
Grandchildren demand that God give saving faith to their grandpa. Neighbors, neighbors, colleagues, colleagues. I have no doubt that with many children who leave home, having led a fairly sheltered life and go off to college, that what hits them massively in college is how many people have no fear of God and no hope in this life or the life to come. And they'd never faced that before. They were around Christians. And all of a sudden, the world hates God. And so they say to themselves, no, this can't be. You know? These are nice people, you know? You're sharing a room with them, you know? You're, you're going out Friday night with them. You're getting them up for classes in the morning because they didn't set their alarm clock. And they're flesh and blood just like you and your brothers and sisters are, you know? And, and how could God not have given them the privilege of having a Christian home? How could God have never given them the message of Scripture? How could God have never revealed himself to them? How could they be so completely ignorant of their sins? God owes it to them. And pretty soon what God owes them is what God owes you. God owes it to me to have his heart and decrees flow in the direction of my affection and commitment. Do you see this? Do you see this? Come on. Come on. Come on. And so who do you worship? Do you worship God or do you worship an idol of your own making? Come on. This is from Jonathan Edwards. He says, from my childhood up, my mind, and Jonathan Edwards had a pretty big mind. My mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty, God's authority. As I was little, his mind was filled with objections to God's authority. Really, in what way? Well, he goes on and he says, in choosing whom he would to eternal life and rejecting whom he pleased. Oh, that's the particular point of God's authority that from the time he was little, his mind was filled with objections to it. Leaving them eternally to perish and be everlastingly tormented in hell. It used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me, but I remember the time very well when I seemed to be convinced and fully satisfied about this authority, this sovereignty of God. And his justice in thus eternally disposing of men according to his sovereign pleasure. And then he says, I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit. He says, you know, I I never could really figure out why I had this change of mind and heart towards God's choice. And then he says, but it never occurred to me that it was the Holy Spirit that changed my mind. (laughs) Which I think is kind of funny, you know? 
But he says, finally, my mind rested in this doctrine and it put an end to all those cavils and objections. And there has been a wonderful change in my mind with respect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty, God's authority. From that day to this, so that I hardly ever have found so much as the rising of an objection against it in the most absolute sense, and God showing mercy to whom he will show mercy and hardening whom he will. God's absolute authority, sovereignty, his justice, with respect to salvation and damnation is what my mind seems to rest assured of as much as anything that I see with my eyes. At least it is so at times. In other words, sometimes he falters in this, right? But I have often, since the first conviction, had quite another sense, kind of sense of God's sovereignty than I had then. I have often since had not only a conviction, but a delightful conviction. Now watch the language of emotion come into this at this point. He's not sufficient to tell you that his intellect was convinced. But now he wants to tell you that his heart began to rejoice in it. This is one of the wonderful things about John Piper. John has told us that we don't begin to worship God and to serve him until we have delight in him. Okay? It actually is not godly to be devoid of emotions, you know? Hate to break it to you. And so watch Edwards where he goes now. He says, yeah, I was convinced intellectually, but then I began to delight in it. The doctrine has very often appeared exceedingly pleasant, bright, and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. But my first conviction was not so. The first instance that I remember of that sort of inward sweet delight in God and divine things that I have lived much in since was on reading those words. And listen, I have read this to some of you four and five times. And I wonder if any of you remember what were the words of scripture that caused him to first have delight in this. Do any of you remember? The first word is now. Nobody? Now. Now unto the king. (laughs) Now unto the king. Immortal. Invisible. God only wise. Be honor and glory forever and evermore. <laughs> oh. Oh, worship. The deepest truth is worship. The deepest truth is not logic. The deepest truth is to worship God. 
now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forevermore. And that's us. People, it does not get deeper than that. It doesn't get deeper than that. We can go on and on and on with our questions and our objections and what we think ain't right and the natural rights, the, the consent of the governed, the, the demand that God fulfill his covenant promises, on and on and on and on. And of course, we're the ones that choose the various proportion that the various weight that is given to this truth and that truth of Scripture. You see, depending on how we feel at any particular time, well, right now I'm feeling like you better answer me and tell me why my son has spent 20 years swapping pigs down in New Orleans, out in California, in New York City, in Manhattan. And then another day, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, Jesus, more love to thee, oh, Christ, more love to thee, you know? Um, and then the next morning, you saved my son. You said you'd be a God to my children. And then the next morning, you know, and can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's died he for me who caused this shame? And then the next morning, and back and forth we go. And any particular day, we emphasize what we want to emphasize. And we de-emphasize what we don't want to emphasize at that particular moment in time. And we're absolutely certain that the proportion is right because it's how we feel. And what we need to do is simply worship God. And, excuse me, Shut our mouths with objections, with cavils. Open them in praise. Open them in gratitude. Do you know the one thing that is utterly missing in social media is gratitude. It's like if somebody writes that they're grateful, let alone to God, I think everybody would stomp on them with their combat boots. Don't you know that's against the rules? That ain't right. Jonathan Edwards got to the point where he was convinced. And then, now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible God, only wise, be blessing and honor and glory forevermore. Amen. And then he worshiped. Then he worshiped. And he goes on and he says that after this time, he began to see the hand of God in everything that he looked at in life and that prior to this, and you'll remember this, everybody remembers this, that prior to this, he hated thunderstorms. They scared the snot out of him. And he'd run and he'd hide and he was just scared. And then he said, as soon, and he says, when I'd see the clouds coming, I, I, I was scared. Then he says that once he worshiped God for his absolute sovereignty and authority, then all of a sudden, if he saw clouds coming for a thunderstorm, he'd go outside to watch it. <laughs> He's like my wife. You know, my wife, she's a trip. You know, if she hears a tornado is coming, she's she going to be outside looking for it. 
you know. And other people are diving into the tornado cellars and, you know, and they're yelling, Mary Lee! And she's like, where is it? You know? (laughs) Well, that's the way Edwards was with thunderstorms. He was outside watching the clouds playing with each other and listening to the voice of God and the thunder and seeing the flashes of lightning. He said that thunderstorms became his favorite thing. Well, what happened? Well, he became comfortable in understanding that thunderstorms are entirely at the command of God. You know, it's like Stonewall Jackson. He's as safe out on the battlefield as he is in bed at night. You see, ultimately, reason and logic are limited in man. But what is not limited is gratitude and worship and love. You know, you can explain to your wife all you want that you like her because she cooks sugar cookies just the way your mama did. And because she wears clothes that you think are pretty. And that you think she's pretty. And you like her because she puts the cat back on the toothpaste. And you like it when you see your children because they remind you of her. And you go on and on and on and somehow it ain't cut it yet. And then you look in her eyes and you say, I love you. You don't explain it. You don't give the particulars. It's everything she is. Have you ever gotten to the point in marriage where you even love the things that she does wrong? You know, it's like, how could I live without the wrong things that Mary Lee does? Even the wrong things have become endearing to me. I don't know what I'd do if I was in a home where there were, where there were occasionally things stacked on the stairs. <laughs> you know, ready to trip me. Now, I'm not saying that you will love the things that God has done that is wrong. But I am saying to you that God is saying to us in this passage, you be quiet. You do not have the right to examine the secret things that belong to me. They are not your prerogative. They are not your bailiwick. They are not your pay grade. You be quiet. You do not answer back to God. I will make from the same lump of clay vessels that are honorable and vessels that are dishonorable. One final thing, brothers and sisters. If you think that you do love God's authority over life and over salvation, what you have to understand is that the really extraordinary thing about this passage of Scripture is not that God doesn't choose some. The extraordinary thing is that God does choose some. And what you need to concentrate less on is what God doesn't do. And what you need to concentrate more on is what God has done. And what you really need to be flabbergasted at 
is that God reached down into the hole that you were in, and he plucked you out of it. And he gave you faith. That's the amazing thing. Because God owes nothing to any of us. Nothing. And yet, in his amazing love and mercy, generation after generation, the gates of hell have not prevailed against the church. And they won't prevail now. They won't prevail now. And so, give thanks to God. Worship him and love him, adore him. Jonathan Edwards was no wuss. David killed the bear and the lion, and David looked at God and judged him. But nobody worshiped God like David did. And emotional language and heart language just permeate the Psalms. And that was manly. Our Father, we thank you for this specific set of words that your Holy Spirit inspired for us this moment. Our Father, we confess to you that we are judgmental against you and not just against our authorities. We confess that we think we know better. And we confess that our hearts are not zealous to praise you. Father, would you please awaken our hearts from their slumber, from their hard-heartedness, from their callousness. And would you help us to enter into worship in our worship services and at home with our families so that our children grow up seeing in us Whom have I in heaven but you? And aside from you, my heart desires nothing. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my portion forevermore. Father, now open our lips that as we end this work of worshiping you, we will do it with zeal in Jesus' name.